Well, hello, everybody, and uh, good afternoon to everyone in the UK and, uh, and in Europe, and um, hope you're having a good day wherever in the world you are. Um, and welcome to this lunchtime lecture at University College London, where we're going to listen to Professor Paul Dodds talking about building the foundations of the UK's net zero strategy. Paul Dodds is Professor of Energy Systems in the UCL Energy Institute, and he created and leads the development of the UK Times Energy System Model in partnership with the UK government, who have adopted it as their principal in-house energy system model. He also works with global and European energy system models. His research projects have examined hydrogen energy systems, energy storage, interconnection, bioenergy, and carbon capture and storage from a whole systems perspective. So he's eminently well qualified to talk about the topic that he's going to address today. He also initiated the current interest in repurposing the UK gas networks to deliver hydrogen as a heat decarbonization strategy. And before joining academia, he worked in the nuclear power industry. I have really just one uh, sort of quasi domestic announcement uh, before we begin. So there will be time at the end of the lecture for questions. And you can post these questions uh, at any time during the talk by going to the Slido website, which I'm sure many of you will already be familiar with. You simply need to put sli.do into your internet browser and then enter the event code. And the event code is uh, hashtag net zero or one word. And I understand that you have been sent that in advance of the meeting, just in case you forget it. So that's enough for me. I'm now going to hand over to Paul uh, for his talk. Paul, welcome. Thank you very much, Paul. That's very much appreciated. So I'm just going to show you my slides, which should now be on the screen. So welcome, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here to talk to you all today about... Um... Paul, we're uh, having connection problems. You're freezing Paul. and uh, we're, we're not hearing you. Okay. So I can go forward for you and we can resume. Just okay. let me know when you want me to change the slides. Okay. So, so energy system models have had a really strong influence in UK climate policy from the energy white paper in 2003 up to the net zero strategy in 2021. Uh, they were used first of all to propose targets for decarbonizing the economy. So we start with a 60% reduction in emissions and we're at 80% and now we're at net zero. They were used to build an evidence base and political consensus around decarbonizing to develop a legislative framework, for example, through the, through the uh, committee, setting up the Committee on Climate Change Act and, um, and through tighter targets and improvements, uh, more recently going towards net zero. And there's been a range of energy system models that have contributed to this. So we started off with a model called UK Markal. And then around 2012, 2013, we developed the UK Times model to replace that. Uh, there's been other models in the background that have also contributed, so ESME uh, for the UK. And then uh, other ones that, uh, which have been more focused at European or global uh, scales. And going forward, so I'm going to talk a little bit at the end about going to a regional UK model. Next slide, please. The reason we use these models is we need to ensure that we have the right information to inform the sorts of changes in our lives that are needed in order to prevent serious climate change by reducing emissions. So these types of models will tell us how we can decarbonize the economy, what steps we need to take and when in order to meet our targets, and what sort of technologies that we might need, such as the heat pump system on the right-hand side. Next slide, please. The other really valuable part about these models is their cost optimization models. So they are economic models that take with, it, with, with a very strong engineering component. They enable us to put a price on mitigating climate change. 
and understand what the implications might be for the economy as well as for the energy system. Next slide, please. And so today we're going to explore how energy system models are built and used and to what extent we can trust them. Um, we're going to, in part one, we'll talk a bit about energy system models in general and then the UK Times model in particular. Then we'll think a bit, a bit about the uses of energy system models. And finally, we'll consider future developments in the space. Next slide, please. So first of all, the UK Times model. So when we think about, when we build energy system models, we think about the, how we can design energy supply chains. So what they look like. And this is a schematic of, energy, of an energy supply chain, a typical one. So we start off by extracting primary energy, then we go to secondary energy conversions. Then we go, then we have an end use device, which uses that. So for example, a primary energy might be gas, natural gas, which we then convert into electricity. That's a secondary energy carrier. We then have an end use device, which might be a heat pump. And that provides an energy service, which is heating. Okay. And, and we can have many different energy service demands across the economy, whether they're in our houses for heating, for lighting, for cooking, uh, for, tra in the, for transport, in industry, in the commercial sector, in agriculture. So, so across the economy, we have, we have a plethora of devices that can that provide those services that can run on different types of energy. Uh, if you can press, please, there's a few animations on this one. Um, and there's a number of interventions that we can make throughout this. So for example, we can improve our, the efficiency by which we extract primary energy and that, that will reduce the overall cost. We can improve the efficiency of transmission and distribution to reduce losses, um, for example, on the transmission and networks for electricity. We can improve the energy conversion efficiency of devices. So in, in the last 20, 20 years or so, we've had, had a major move from non-condensing to condensing boilers in the UK, uh, gas boilers for providing heat. And, and that's greatly improved the conversion efficiency of those of uh, the product of supply of heat uh, to people's homes. So there's, an, there's a large number of interventions that we can make throughout this. And we want to understand how those interventions could be made, which ones are cost-effective, which ones aren't, when the appropriate time might be to do them. And, and that's what energy system models try to tell us. If we go to the next slide, please. So, so in practice, we, we can make a, another schematic here, um, this time going from left to right. So we dig up resources, we have some processing plants, we deliver the fuel, we have end use technologies, and we have energy service demands. And there's lots of crossovers between these across the energy system on the supply side. So for example, here, there's six different energy supply chains shown on this diagram. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them. Let, let's go to the next slide. Because when we actually build a model, it looks more like this. So it, it's a really complex beast. We have maybe a thousand different technologies and se several hundred different energy carriers, commodities um, in the model. And each of those technologies is taking one or more commodities and producing one or more different commodities. All, going all the way through from digging up oil and gas or importing or exporting, uh, commodities to the to our end users and our energy service plans. And so our models consider the links across all of the sectors and between all of the technologies and commodities that can be used in each sector. Next slide, please. So then this slide and the next one are slightly complicated. Don't, don't get scared by it. It's just these two. Um, I, I really wanted to describe the key model features of these types of models. So first of all, they're bottom-up models. So they're not a macroeconomic model. They're, they're very much built of many, many different building blocks. So as I said, we have a thousand technologies perhaps and several hundred commodities all linked together in order to define the, the current energy system and all the potential options in the future. Um, they're perfect foresight models. And what that mean, by that, we mean that the model, when it solves, it, it understands, it knows what all of the future demands for each type of energy is going to be, each type of energy source, energy service demand, and it knows all of the future costs of all the technology, um, of technologies that even those that we haven't uh, invented or, or um, mastered yet. 
and, and, and of course, that's not quite realistic. We don't know the future cost of everything. But for the, for the terms of this model, we, we make our best guess, and the model understands that at the outset. It's a cost optimization model. So we provide the capital cost and the operating cost as inputs. The model itself will calculate fuel prices and carbon price um, for each model year in, in order to meet our goals, uh, uh, which might be, for example, to be net zero by 2050. But it's, it's very much focused around cost. We're not trying to minimize the amount of energy we use here. We're trying to minimize the cost of that energy. It does help us to understand potential future energy flows through the economy and the impact of environmental and other constraints. But it doesn't predict the future. We make scenarios of what the future might be. And if all of this many assumptions that we make about those scenarios turn out to be true, then there's a reasonable chance that we'll be reasonably close. But of course, there's a lot of uncertainty about many of those assumptions, and we need to take that. Next slide, please. This is the only equations I have in this, um, in this uh, lecture, but I thought it was important to put them in here. So the first one, if you can, uh, if you can press uh, next slide, get the box up. The first one, we're, we're going to minimize the cost vector multiplied by the variables. So that's that's the total cost essentially, and we minimize the total cost of the whole energy system, energy system over the whole time horizon. So we start in 2010 and we go up to 2060, and it's all all energy uses, all all energy demands up to that point. We add all all the costs together and we minimize it. That's uh, subject. If you can press again. That's subject to satisfying every single energy service demand in the economy. So we have to either meet it or exceed it at every time, every demand at every time point. And finally, if you can click once more, we put a, a range of other constraints on one. Some of those are necessary. So we have to make sure that, for example, processes don't produce more than they consume, because uh, that would break the laws of physics. Um, and we might put other constraints on, for example, we might limit the, the amount of emissions. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions across the economy at various time points. And so there's a number of extra ones. So we need to satisfy all of the constraints. That, that's our basic three equations in these models. Now, in practice, that might translate to 100,000 equations in a UK model. Um, but there's a, a basic number. There'll only ever be one, one of the objective function equations. We have about 50 service um, energy service demands. So there's about 50 of the second one. And then all of the rest come in the third category. Next slide, please. So there's five broad steps that we have to build an energy system model. So the first thing we need to do is to try and take a snapshot. So almost like taking a photograph of the existing energy system. We, uh, we do that um, and we try to model the, we do that for a past year, of course, where we actually have the statistics. And we try to model that entire energy system within, um, within our model. Uh, and that's, we call that our base year. Um, so once, once we've got that, we then need to make three sets of important assumptions. So first of all, we need to decide how long we think all of the existing infrastructure and devices in our, in our first year are going to last for. So for example, we, take, we currently use a first year of 2010. Um, we have a certain number of boilers across the economy in 2010. We need to, we need to decide at what rate people are going to be replacing their boilers over the following years, um, which, which you know, we, in, in that case, we assume it happens linearly over 15 years, for example. But we have to do that across the whole energy system, both at the end uses in people's houses, cars, and, and upstream, so when nuclear plants are going to be switched off, et cetera, et cetera. Then we need to think about what our future energy service demand is. So how, how are our demands for energy going to change in the future? So for example, if we build more houses, we're going to have a higher demand for heating. If we demand more comfort, then we're going to have a higher demand for heating because people might run their thermostats at a high temperature. But if we do have some climate change and the, and the UK temperature heats up a little bit, then that will reduce our demand for energy. So we take all of that into account and we get final um, projections of what our energy service might, demands might be. And then the final thing we need to assume is what, what is what is going to be the cost and the performance of future technologies in order to meet all of those demands. So whether it's future gas plants, future cars, which could be battery cars, could be fuel cell vehicles. I mean, we don't actually have fission uh, fusion plants to produce electricity, but we could do um, in there. So, so any, anything that we might build in the future. 
um, we need to estimate what the cost and performance would be in order to include them in the model. And once we've made all of those sets of assumptions, we can then explore how the existing energy system is going to evolve in the future as we go uh, over, as we try to decarbonize the economy. And we run the model to 2060. Um, we expect a net zero by 2050, but we don't want it to hit a crescendo and then not look beyond that and make sure it can keep um, keep it net zero. So we're in a place. Next slide, please. In order to build our, our base year, our first year, and take the snapshot of the economy, we need to know all of the energy flows throughout the economy. So we need something like this, which is a Sankey diagram, um, which uh, for the year 2014. Uh, so this shows all of the flows, starting with primary commodities on the left-hand side, natural gas, coal, electricity, et cetera, and going to the uses in each sector on the right-hand side. Next slide, please. Now, in practice, of course, we, we, this is a mathematical model. We need lots and lots of statistics. And our primary data source is the Digest of UK Energy Statistics, JUKES, which is, a, which is a, an annual publication from the uh, UK government. Um, and it covers all sectors of the economy for the UK. Um, so this is, this is one, one particular uh, table. Next slide, please. We also use a range of other statistics, um, such as energy consumption in the UK. We're looking at uh, demands in industry, residential and service sectors. Uh, we, look, we use information from the English Housing Survey, um, also with information from the National Household Model, which is partly based on the Housing Survey. Uh, there's a National Travel Survey that gives us information about the transport sector. We take high-resolution electricity and gas data from National Grid and uh, Alexon. We use the National Atmospheric Emissions Inventory uh, for greenhouse gas and air quality emissions. And we take data from a, a range of other sources too. Input. <clears throat> Next slide, please. So let's think a little bit about UK Times. So UK Times is the successor to the UK Markel model. Uh, and we partly built it because we, uh, Times was a newer system and provided a bit more flexibility and because Markel wasn't being supported. Um, so the, the paradigm of the model is almost exactly the same as I showed you earlier. The equations are the same as what I showed you earlier, but it, it, it's a bit more flexible in how it does a number of things, such as energy storage um, or, or, or representing variations in demand through the year. Um, so UK Times in particular, the changes between that and UK Mark Alpha. First of all, we started modeling all greenhouse gas emissions. So UK Markel looked only at carbon dioxide, whereas UK Times has methane, nitrous oxide, and the F gases. Uh, we, we put much more emphasis on modeling energy storage and flexibility within the system. And, and we completely revised how we represented the industrial sector. And we tried to, when we were doing this, we tried to make our, our assumptions much more explicit than they were in the previous model. And we tried to incorporate quality assurance at the heart of development. I mean, th th this is a really important thing, and I think an area in which many models are going, but not something that academic models in particular have generally been well known for in the past. Um, we saw during COVID, for example, uh, where there were some quite influential models that, that were considered to be to have quite messy code underlying them and assumptions. And there was quite a concerted effort made to actually improve the quality of the underlying code themselves to try to remove any errors that might be there. And that's, that is going across government um, for any models that are used for policy making. UK Times considers five-year periods from 2010 to 2060. And we line those up with UK carbon budgets. So we can have a look at what, what it takes in order to meet each carbon budget uh, on the way towards net zero. We do try to represent temporal variations through the year, but we use only 16 time slices, so not many. Um, a really detailed electricity model might look at hourly data, so 8,760 time slices for comparison. And the other, the other way in which UK Times is quite limited is spatial. So it's a single region model. We have no regional disaggregation, like a point model of the UK. But we do represent all UK energy service demands and all UK energy demands, greenhouse gas emissions and air pollutants, both now and in the future. So it's very, it's very broad in what it covers. Next slide, please. 
we split the model into five, into uh, seven broad, well, eight, eight broad sectors actually. So one is resources, incorporating mining, imports, and electricity, uh, imports and exports. Sorry. Then we have secondary fuels, which are in two two sectors. So one is processing, and the other one is electricity. And then we have five end use sectors: transport, residential, industry, services, and agriculture. And each of those. Each of those five end-use sectors has a set of energy service demands, which are at the top. And the aim of the model is to meet all of those demands. Next slide, please. And each of those sectors is quite detailed in how it is represented, how they are represented. So here's an example from the transport sector. So, so within the within the transport end-use sector, we have an input, a fuel input to the sector, and we have a, a wide range of fuels that could be used. That, that go from petroleum-based fuels, um, such, such as petrol, diesel, jet fuel, and such like, um, hydrogen, electricity, uh, biofuels. So, so we have quite a few. They go into refueling infrastructure, so we account for the cost of um, refueling stations, which is particularly important when you start thinking about electric, um, public electric charging or hydrogen fueling stations. Then we have the actual vehicles themselves, um, which can we have a, a wide a number of cars uh, to find. I, th I think uh, for new new cars we maybe have about ten or fifteen different types. <clears throat> we have we similarly have a number of buses, LGVs, trains, and such like. And each of those meets an, a separate energy service demand. So so our demand for cars is in terms of billion vehicle kilometers. <clears throat> similarly for buses, for trains we have passenger trains in passenger kilometers, and we have freight trains in freight kilometers. Um, <clears throat> but we, we effectively have lots of different subsectors for each type of transport mode. Um, so, so it's really quite detailed. Next slide, please. <clears throat> now I mentioned that the, that temporarily the model was quite aggregated, that we have only 16 time slices in the whole model. So we, we, we have what, the way we do this is we have one day in each season and we split that day into four time periods. So that's night, day, evening, peak and late evening. And they're based on the average demands for electricity. So this is a graph of the, of the demands in, 20, in 2010, slash 11. Um, and you can see there's a, a, an evening peak and there's an overnight low and then there's two periods in between. So, so that, these, these are the four periods that we consider within each season. Um, by doing this, we can we can take account of the of the changes through the day between the peak and the low, and that's quite important um, in in order to get the right amount of electricity generation infrastructure. And, and, and while it might not be the case in the future, at the moment, the intraday the, cha the change in electricity demand between night and and the evening peak is higher than the change in electricity demand between summer and winter. That might change in the future if we have lots of heat pumps and electric vehicles, but that's the case at the moment. Um, and then by also having each season represented, we can look at intra-seasonal storage, for example, of natural gas and hydrogen, where that could be quite important in the future, if we have much greater demands in winter than in summer. Next slide, please. But we don't have to, be, we don't have, we're not restricted to that. So we can't, we have built higher resolution versions of the model. And we have a version that's 192 time slices. So that's got the same four season, but four days in each season and two hourly periods within each day. And, and the idea of that particular model was to represent different weather for conditions and their impacts on renewable generation within each season. So each of those days represents a different typical pattern of renewables within that season, um, which is what, what is shown in the graph here. This shows the capacity factor of onshore and offshore wind and solar. So you can see in, in winter, solar is quite small, in summer it's quite big, but the onshore and offshore wind varies quite a lot within each season because we, we consider lows and highs. Now that particular model is about 28 gigabytes in size and takes about four hours to solve on a very high specification workstation. So going, much big, going to a much greater resolution than that is quite difficult unless we reduce the the footprint of our model equations uh, elsewhere in the model. So, so you have this trade-off between spatial and temporal resolution and model detail, um, because it's very difficult to make a, an extremely high resolution model 
that has the detail and the breadth of UK Times. Um, computers aren't capable of uh, holding all the data and solving them very. Next slide, please. So in part, in part two, I'd like to talk about the uses of energy system models for policy development and research. So governments use these models to create credible and self-consistent decarbonization pathways. So for here's, here's uh, two, two examples of publications in, in the net zero strategy. There was three scenarios or three very broad scenarios defined. Each of those was backed up by modeling, but in UK times. And then underneath those, there was a number of sensitivity type studies of changing what, what government analysts thought were the key parameters. Uh, to see what the implications might be. But the important thing about all of the all of them was they all met net zero in a credible way. And, and they were internally self-consistent because they, they examined the whole energy system. Next slide, please. And they provide evidence to support government climate policies. Can you click again, please? So in the energy white paper in 2003, there was a statement that the cost impact of effectively tackling climate change would be very small and equivalent in 2050 to just a small fraction of the nation's wealth measured by GDP. Now, interestingly, when the, when the CCC made, made the recommendation to move to a net zero target, they thought that the cost of doing that would be similar to this cost shown here. Um, but this cost shown here is for a 60% cut, not for a net zero cut. So, so we, th we now think that we can make the cuts, we can make far more cuts than was envisaged then for around the same cost in terms of the nation's GDP. Um, can you press again, please? And here's another quote from the Energy White Paper in 2007. Um, Our modeling indicates that excluding nuclear is a more expensive route to achieving our carbon goal. Even though in our modeling, the costs of alternative technologies are assumed to fall over time as they mature. So, pe so people had run a number of scenarios in 2007, after some, after some pushback actually against the white paper in 2003, which, which made a strong pitch for, for developing renewables as, as far as possible. Um, the 2007 work, um, the results suggested that, the, that building nuclear would be Cheap, would be a cheaper way of, or at least building at least some nuclear would be a cheaper method of achieving carbon goals. And that, and that was taken from results in models like this. Now, interestingly, I think if we, if we did those sums again, that, that statement is almost certainly not true anymore. So, so renewables are quite a bit cheaper and nuclear uh, is probably more expensive than we would assume based on history um, in, in the models. Next slide, please. And, th and there, were, there were some fairly nice, pithy insights from the study, from, from the model. Now, in practice, models such as UK Times produce a huge amount of out output data. So this is an example of electricity load in each of the four days in each of the seasons um, in 2010, 2013, 2015. Um, so this is the 192 times life version. Uh, and this is one very small output amongst many, many, many outputs. So, so that type of model can, can produce a, a gigabyte worth of outputs from a single run. And you need to, of course, analyze and condense all of that into useful information. Next slide, please. Um, such as these graphs. So these graphs are for hydrogen. Um, one from the base hydrogen strategy on the left-hand side, um, where they've run a series of scenarios and looked at the proportion of hydrogen uh, in total energy consumption in 2050 in each of those scenarios. And they came, with the they came up with the best guess of between 20 and 35%. On the right-hand side, you, you ha we have an academic study that, which, has, which examines three different scenarios and the use of hydrogen in 2050 in each of those scenarios, where, where it varies between about three and 19 megatons per year. So the interesting thing about these models is they indicate the potential uses of fuels, and they do that by sector, and if you want, by technology. And there's a huge number of technologies considered going forward. But you also get an, an idea of what the uncertainty might be in, uh, between scenarios by doing this type of thing. Next slide, please. The models are also important for communication. 
um, with both with internal and external state. It, it's notable that if you look at, at a range of uh, at the recent government reports um, that I had on the second slide, you, you'll probably find that there's more or less three broad scenarios in every single one. Now, now that's, that isn't because the government only has three views of what the future might be for the energy system. It's considered that that's an appropriate number for people to understand and, and comprehend uh, what, change, what the various options might be. Um, and, and so those three, what, what's actually in those three scenarios might change from report to report, but almost always there's three scenarios. So that, that's, that's important for communication with external stakeholders. Um, for internal stakeholders, governments also find this really important. So for example, it, so, uh, in the UK government, you will have a team that does modeling with UK Times uh, that looks across the entire energy system. But you have lots of other teams um, for each sector who are experts in particular sectors, but they don't really know what's happening. They don't have a good understanding of what's happening, um, what the planning is for other sectors across the economy. And by having this type of model, you can pick out the results for each sector, send it to the sector teams, and the sector teams can comment and come back. And you can have an, you can build an iterative process to develop scenarios that considers what's happening across in each of the in each of the, by each of the sector teams, but also enables each of the sector teams to understand what all of the issues are elsewhere in the economy. So it, it means everybody can build a lined up a strategy that's coherent. Uh, to get towards net zero in a way that if you have all of the sector teams working independently is not possible. So, so actually one of the big advantages of using these types of models has been to facilitate get, getting all of the various experts on board with a single vision as much as deciding what that vision should be. Next slide, please. Governments have use these models in other places too. So one example is exploring innovation opportunities. Um, so on the left-hand side, we have a, a report um, for BASE on energy innovation needs assessments. And the UK has a reasonably chunky innovation budget that it needs to decide how best to spend. And one way it does that is to consider what the size of markets might be for new technologies in the future and what the costs might be if we invest in them. Um, if we invest in innovation in them. And we can do that by using these types of energy system models because they, they tell us how important a technology might be and, and what it needs to do to become competitive in a particular market. And so they're used for, the, for those types of purposes. Uh, the, the example on the right is looking at, at hydrogen and fuel cell technologies and, and their potential contribution to clean growth in a similar way, uh, which is the research one that I work on. Next slide, please. Where I think academia tends to come in, it, it, is it the kind of the cutting edge? So partly it's about design of these models and doing design in, in cleverer ways. Partly it's about looking at the limitations of the models, whether in terms of what types of technologies they cover and anything that's missing, or, or in terms of the, the assumptions that they make, such as the perfect foresight assumption, or thinking about uncertainty. Those types of things tend to have a greater focus within academia first, uh, rather than within government. So, that, so this is an example of an uncertainty study where, where um, by colleagues of mine who looked at how what would, what would happen or what, what if the cost of the energy system was slightly greater than the optimal cost, how, how different the system might be to get an idea of the uncertainty. And, and the answer is surprisingly different. Next slide, please. And of course, with, for academics, we also try to make a positive impact to the world with our research. So, that, so this is an example from a, a study that came out a year or so ago, um, which was led by one of our PhD students, Dan Wellsby, uh, the person you can see in the top right, um, talking to CNN. Um, he was supervised by Paul Leakins, our chair today. So I'm sure if you have any questions about this, Paul's in a better position than I am to uh, talk about it. Um, this particular paper he wrote uh, from his PhD, it was published in Nature, and it was the most, it, it was the energy paper with the highest media interest globally in the year it was published. 
uh, had people like Greta Thunberg tweeting about it, et cetera, et cetera, and was covered by a huge number of um, organizations. Then it was making a strong case for slowing down fossil fuel, fossil fuel use as soon as we can and how we should do that in an appropriate way. Next slide, please. So I'm, I'm coming on to the final section now on future developments, and I want to talk a bit about technical improvements and improving how we actually use our models themselves. Next slide, please. So one challenge we have with these types of models is that the real world sometimes can change really rapidly, rather more rapidly than we imagine and make some of our modeling assumptions obsolete. So for example, you can see here the costs of renewables on the left-hand side. Um, the PV, concentrated solar power, onshore wind and offshore wind. And we you can see how much in particular PV has come down. And, and to a certain extent, concentrated solar power. Now that's really, really very fast. So we, we do assume that technologies will become cheaper in the future. We do, we do innovation studies and we look at other people's innovation studies to see how well they're going to work, uh, to what extent that they might, this cost might come down. And we try to put those into our models, but we're not always right. Yeah. And a criticism has been in the past that sometimes we're too optimistic. Now with renewables, if anything, we've been too pessimistic. And you can see that on the right-hand side in this paper by Jackson Rosen and Tretnavit. So, so the blue line on this, uh, on that graph on the right-hand side is the actual cost of PV, solar PV in Germany, okay? From 2010 to 2019. Uh, notice the logarithmic scale, uh, the y-axis. Now you can see that the projections of future costs, all, all of the dots show projections of future costs. And you can see that they've tended to come down over time. Um, we have the publication date on the x-axis. So the, the costs, our forecasts of future costs have tended to reduce over, over that decade as the actual costs have reduced a lot. But interestingly, um, at the top of the top right hand of the graph, which I've circled, is a bunch of studies. And the green ones are, are research institute studies. Uh, so, so the color reflects the uh, source of the study. The green ones are research institutes. These are primarily the really big integrated assessment models. And, that, and that what they're assuming is that the cost, the long-term cost of solar PV is higher um, in the future than it actually was in 2018. So they're way out from, from the real world. They're, they're way higher than what, what the cost is likely to be in the future. Uh, and that's a real challenge. You need to keep your, you need to keep a close eye on technologies. And remember, we have a thousand technologies in UK times alone. And, and we need to understand how they're all changing over time and what the implications might be. Next slide, please. Model options are also limited by a modeler's imagination. So I remember when I first joined UCL, I, I, I was using uh, our, our UK Markel model. Now that didn't have the option to convert the gas networks to use hydrogen instead of natural gas. And that, that was something that I tried to model as part of a project uh, led by Paul Eakins as well. And, and, and that turned out to be potentially both technically feasible and an economically optimal approach. So we might save money by doing that. But if, if because that hadn't been included in the model previously, it had never been considered. Uh, and so you need to think about things like that. Th these days, we worry a little bit about synthetic fuels for aviation. So we've recently added those into UK Times um, through another PhD student. It's something that we thought would probably be just too expensive to be justifiable in the past, but now we've moved to net zero. That situation is changing. Next slide, please. We also need to keep a broad view on how our model, our model itself is, is evolving underneath the lid of the model, so to speak. Because these types of models, as I, as I suggested in the last slide, they tend to evolve over time and we gradually make improvements over time. But we need to take a step back from time to time and think about how we can ensure that the model remains balanced. And, and to ensure that the model complexity reflects the system that we're trying to model you know, and making sure it doesn't get too complex in one area and not complex enough in another place. It needs to be balanced. Um, we, worry, we, we did a study a few years ago looking at the, at the 
evolution of the UK Markel model uh, from its first version to its the last version we used. We, put, we called it model archaeology. Uh, and we were interested to see whether some parts of the model were revised much more than other parts. But, and perhaps unsurprisingly, that was the case. So the electricity sector was revised in virtually every every version of the model had a different electricity sector because that, that is something that people have a lot of interest in, particularly in government. The residential sector was revised quite a lot too. Industry and processing actually had very little, very few changes between all of the model versions. And we identified a number of stages of model development um, from initial development to experimentation, incremental improvement, reflection on the model, and then the maturity of the model and reimagining. And in, this, in our case, reimagining was producing UK times. Next slide, please. We're also keen to use better quality data to justify our modeling choices and to enable local modeling to inform local decision making. So here's an example from my colleagues um, in the 3D stock modeling lab in, in UCL, who are modeling every building in the UK and the uses of that building. So, so 3D, because they, they look at different uses on at, at different floors of each building. And by taking that data, we can start putting together a really detailed and accurate description of local areas. And from there, we, we can maybe start doing local energy modeling rather than national, just national energy modeling, and use that to inform local decision-making plans. Um, as, as people like councils try to work out how, how best to contribute towards meeting net zero targets. Next slide, please. We also want to build a coherent ecosystem of energy models because energy system models are, are, not, a, are, are not a kind of a, a system that will tell you every answer that you need to know. So they, they, don't have the, they don't have the temporal detail in order to understand the changes that are required for the electricity system, for example. And you need to link them with some sort of operational model, um, a model of electricity operations. So how the actual grid functions on a day-to-day -day basis to ensure that the system that we produce in, a, in an energy system model like UK Times is actually resilient and feasible, will actually work. Similarly, when we start looking at buildings, you know, we, we have a certain amount of detail I talked about. So. Um, we, in, in UK Times, we, have, we represent the entire housing stock using five different average buildings. But that's only five. And we could, there's a, lot, there's a lot more diversity within the stock and a really detailed building stock model will capture that diversity. Similarly for industry, similarly for transport. And so we, we really want to use all of these different types of models together in order to have a really coherent, strong understanding of the implications of decarbonizing and what the policy options are. Next slide, please. Another issue is that many political aspects of energy are not represented. And we've really noticed that this in the last year with the Ukraine situation and the change in the price of gas and oil. Um, so so one, one part is energy security, which is very much jumped, which is very much um, become, well, is being considered much more seriously than it was before now. And I think slightly further down the horizon, affordability and prices are going to be have much more um, emphasis, particularly when we think about decarbonizing houses, decarbonizing heat. So that's something I think we're going to have to think about more in the future, having all parts of the energy trilemma and not just considering sustainability, so cutting emissions and cost. Next slide, please. And even when we do do, do cost, I've, I've, I've made an implicit assumption up until now that minimizing cost is the main criteria for choosing decarbonization pathways. Now, it shouldn't be at all. Um, I mean, the, the cost of in reducing emissions is important, but the cost of avoiding climate change, you, you could um, summarize it as the cost of reducing emissions plus lower adaptation and damage costs and, and also high co-benefits of, of uh, reducing emissions. So for example, by uh, better quality health for people. And we should be comparing that with the cost of climate change, which where you will have high adaptation, high damage costs. Um, that's the sort of comparison we should be doing rather than just looking at the cost of reducing emissions and saying, that's going to cost us 2% of GDP, that's bad. 
it's, it's not a useful comparison. Next slide, please. And so, just, so to conclude, these types of models, I think, have built the foundations of the net zero strategy uh, by underpinning many, um, but, uh, many policy decisions and generally UK climate policy uh, for the last 20 odd years. They're a useful platform for communicating complex decarbonization issues. Many improvements are possible to the models and to the process of developing and using models. So we're still working on them and there's still much to do. But today they have given us evidence for the public and politicians, which give us confidence that decarbonization is feasible and economically viable. Next slide, please. And that, thank you very much for listening to that. And I'd be very happy to take questions. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Uh, that's uh, an amazing tour de force uh, and uh, a big, big um, uh, coverage of, of a, an important and complex situation. Um, we have got some questions, I'm pleased to say, on Slido. So I'm now going over to Slido to have a look at them. And um, uh, I'll just remind everyone who's listening that you can vote up questions. Um, at the moment, we've got uh, a few questions, but no one has voted them up or down. So I'm going to take them um, largely from the top. Um, and we had an anonymous person who said, I understand the model outputs are not predictions, but do you have any sense as to whether your past projections for 2022 have been borne out by what happened? <laughs> That's a good question. So what, why should we trust anything that comes out of these models? Um, is a great question. Um, it's difficult. I mean, for, there's a number of reasons why it's difficult. First of all, these are economic models, uh, and they tend, we tend to do them in the absence of policy. Um, we, we run them in the absence of policy, partly because we don't know what future policy is going to be. <coughs> Recovering from a cold. Um, <clears throat> and so people have tried to run this type of model in the past. Um, so, so to go in the go say twenty years backwards and then run them forwards and see what would happen and see see if what the model says is what actually happened with pretty limited success, I have to say, and there's a number of reasons for that. So one one type of reason is political. So for example, if you started running your model in the 1970s, you might not know that the the model doesn't know that there's going to be coal strikes in the 1980s and. Uh, um, a really big effort by the UK government to undermine the coal industry by investing in gas. And so by the end of the 1980s, we and 1990s, we started getting lots of gas generation when that wasn't the cheapest way forward, but politically it felt best for the UK government. Um, so, so that would be one issue. Another issue is subsidies. So we've, we've, had a re we've been really successful at bringing down the costs of wind in the UK. And that's largely been done through subsidies, which have gradually reduced over time. Now, the model in the model we don't use those; we don't have those subsidies. Well, we can put them in, but generally we we don't run the model with subsidies. And so, all that wind that has been built, much of that wind that has been built, which is subsidised, might not have been economically feasible in the model, even though it was in real life because of the subsidy. And so, the model wouldn't build it. So, there's some good reasons why the model would tend to diverge from reality. Um, Saying that we do look in the first, we do tend to look in the first few years, and it's, it it doesn't normally do anything really silly. Um, we don't we don't see it throwing away um, one one big bunch of in, a big load of infrastructure and building something completely different over that time. Um, and if we did, we 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 would investigate to find out why. But we don't get exactly what happened in real life because it's it's very hard to do so. Okay, so let's um, move on to number two. We've got uh, two questions from someone called JS. So thank you, JS. Um, I'm going to ask the first one now, and that is, why doesn't the government, the UK government, invest in and promote commercial investment in a suitable range of renewable energy generation? I guess the emphasis there seems to be on a suitable range of renewable energy generation. Um, that's, a, that's a slightly wider question. Um, 
I mean, it depends what you think is suitable, and the, the, there's a number of reasons for what, the, for what the government does. I mean, partly because it is <clears throat> industry has a limited bandwidth to build stuff, particularly offshore wind. Um, it hasn't. The UK is not a particularly sunny country, and until recently, PV was a bit harder to justify. Uh, you can't justify it. Onshore wind was banned. And offshore wind was limited by the capacity of the industry to build it, uh, both in terms of the ships that can actually build it and in terms of the HVDC, uh, so high, high voltage DC cables that you need to link the wind farm to the land. Um, and at the same time, the government doesn't want to spend too much on subsidies at any one time. So it's, it's keen to try to keep things ticking over, but it doesn't want, it, it doesn't go all out. Um, crazy for them. The, the other thing is when you have an existing infrastructure, if you build new infrastructure, you, you end up retiring your existing infrastructure early. And so that, that, that then becomes an economic loss that you need to take into account. Now, if we'd known that gas prices were going to be at the level gas prices have been at the last year, and if we thought that they were going to continue in the future, then I imagine the government would have had a completely different case for building more renewables in, in the past few years than it did do. Uh, but of course, it didn't know. It 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 didn't uh, know what the cost prices were going to be, and so it did. Um, so 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 there's a number of reasons why they might go, go slower than we would like. Fine. But, okay. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to jump down to uh, someone called Ian Flynn, who has uh, asked a question about livestock farming, and what he said is globally. GHG emissions for livestock farming are at least 14.5%, probably more if CH4, that's methane, etc., cetera, uh, are properly included. But this doesn't seem to figure in the model. Why? Um, it is in the model. It's in the agricultural sector. So, so I mentioned in UK Times, we, uh, for the first time, we started tracking all greenhouse gas emissions, including nitrous oxide and methane. So within our agri agricultural sector, most of our emissions are, are, are either methane from livestock or nitrous oxide from fertilization of land, of arable land. And we have a number of um, measures we can take in order to reduce those emissions at various costs. It's essentially a marginal abatement cost curve for each of those uh, using data we, we've taken from DEFRA. Although in practice, most of those emissions are almost impossible to avoid. And so if we want to go to net zero, we need to have some sort of negative emissions elsewhere in the economy, in the energy system. It's, it's quite hard to avoid more than about 15 megatons, I think, uh, but between agriculture, waste, and international aviation and shipping, you'll end up with about 50 megatons of CO2 equivalent that you can't avoid. Fine, thank you. So. Um... We'll jump down one now. We've had a couple of votings in, and uh, you mentioned that this was a cost optimization model. And um, uh, some anonymous listener has asked, what's the reason for using a cost optimization model rather than one that does something else, e.g., minimize energy and resource use? Uh, I mean, bro broadly, because policy is normally based on cost rather than minimizing resources. Um, assuming that enough resources are available, of course. And we do model all of the various resources. So in our global model, we model how much oil, gas, coal we think there is globally, uh, storage capacity for CO2 underground for CCS. So we model all those types of things. Um, but broadly, governments make decisions based on cost-benefit analyses. And so if you can't take it, if, if the model can't tell them approximately what the cost is going to be, they won't take action. Right. Okay, and then one I think you can deal with very quickly because I think it did come out of the presentation, uh, again, from an anonymous listener. Has the UK government incorporated the UK Times model into their energy strategy? Yes, I mean, I think that's fair to say. So it's mentioned in the white paper. There was an energy white paper came out a year or so ago. And what one of the aims mentioned in that white paper was to continue developing the UK Times model into a regional version uh, to be used by the UK government. Uh, and they've also, they've also used it for most to inform most of their reports. It's, it's certainly not the only model they use. They use a range of models, um, most of them in-house, but 
It's one of the key ones, and it's been used for all of the major reports in recent times. And they have a team within BASE that specializes in using this model. So I think the answer is yes. Right. Thank you. Um, so we've got uh, a question now, uh, quite a long-standing one from, again, Anonymous. Given that renewable energy can change its output quite quickly, how do the models take account of the need for flexibility to balance supply with demand? Uh, the short answer to that is badly <laughs> with these types of models. So they're not really designed to do that. And we, we can, we, we have the cost of renewables and we can put in a cost of flexibility. Um, we, do, we do make the model construct more generation than it actually needs in order to balance all of its electricity demands, because we know that there is a, a difference between the average demand in any season, for example, and the total, uh, the total uh, peak generation that the electricity system needs to meet. But, but broadly, the answer is that we, we test the electricity system that it produces in, in other models. And then if there's some sort of issue, so if the assumptions we're making in UK times don't add up when we go to a high, high temporal resolution model, then we go back and change our assumptions until they do. But that, that's a good example of where we do need other models uh, to complement the energy system model. Right. And I think we may be moving to the last question now. There's an important one from FP, and uh, he or she is asking, how do the distributional impacts of clean energy transition get examined? Are there ways to mathematically factor these into the models for a just transition? Um, so, so at the moment, they're not considered. I think it's fair to say. They're considered, I mean, they're considered by the government, but they're considered quite separately from the long-term energy planning, they're not considered in these types of models. So we don't we don't um, we, we don't differentiate between different parts of the UK population, for example, which is what we would need to do. We need to separate each part of the UK population out, and we'd need to look at the impacts on them. And I guess if we did that, we could then minimise the impacts on particular groups if we thought that was important, and that would come out. That would then produce a different decarbonisation policy for those. Um, in a different overall decarbonisation path to what we get at the moment. Um, it's something that would be great to do. I would love to do it, but we we don't really have the data at the moment, and we don't have the funding all the time. So it's a it's some, something uh, it's 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 something in the back of my mind that I'd like to work on in the future. But we we, we don't we, we're not quite we don't have the capability yet. Thank you. I think we can squeeze in just one more, and there's another anonymous one here uh, up at the top, um, which says. If deep market reform can affect the revenues for technologies, does this mean the model needs adjusting or just that assumptions on the technology cost need updating? Um, it's a good question. So we have, we have fairly simple markets. In, I mean, essentially, we, we have a simple model of a market in UK Times, uh, which for electricity is something like the old pool system. Um, so it works on marginal cost. Um, electricity is an interesting case for this because all, all electricity markets are, are done by design. There isn't an obvious method. You know, there, isn't, there isn't a single obvious method about how to build an electricity market. And what we have in reality is quite complicated and what we have in the model is quite simple. Um, so fundamentally, we do try to just look at cost here. And, and and we don't worry too much about market design. So that's that's a real that's a real world implementation issue. Now, if the market design makes it much more expensive than we assume in the in the model, then I suppose we could try to take that into account by changing the cost of the technologies uh, or particular technologies. But it's not something we've looked at in great detail. We tend to answer the what question about what 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 might we want in the future, and and and. Before, before we get into the intricacies of how, the, how it's going to be delivered through markets or anything else. Okay. Well, Paul, thank you very much. Lots of questions answered very, uh, very succinctly and uh, effectively. So um, I'm going to bring the uh, lunchtime lecture to an end now. Thank you very much to all our listeners uh, for coming along. I hope that has um, shown you to some extent, at least, how it is that, that the government arrives at these um, graphs and curves and everything that we're familiar with.
and and how indeed it makes uh, or it uh, helps to inform itself on the subject of the net zero strategy. There's lots of other stuff in there, of course, that doesn't get into models. Um, so I'll I'll close the uh, session now. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening, um, and uh, have a good day. <laughs>